Welcome to Product Stories, where we explore how founders build successful software products. This is a podcast about product management, development, remote work, and anything else non-technical as well as technical founders need to know to launch and scale software products. Today's guest is Amar Ghosh, the founder and CEO of ZenMade, and he will tell us how he grew his SaaS to over 100k MRR from an internal tool he had a developer build while he was running his made service in the US. Amar, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Victor. Looking uh, looking forward to the conversation. My pleasure. Uh, Amar, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, where, where you came from into the SaaS world? Yeah, definitely. So I, just in a nutshell, I grew up in Silicon Valley. Um, I grew up in Palo Alto, so I was always kind of surrounded by tech companies and uh, and software and stuff. My dad was a uh, was an engineer at um, like HP and Intel and some of like some of those places. Uh, what's funny is when I was younger, I was never really into that sort of stuff. And so I was always a bit in entrepreneurial and tried a couple of things while I was like in high school and while I was in college, little micro niche sites and stuff like that. Uh, ended up graduating college and um, and joining a couple of, uh, of tech startups. So I was into sales and tech startups, but I was still always trying to do stuff on the side. And so the long story short is at some point I came across a, a series of posts that talked about starting your own your own cleaning company or maid service without doing any of the cleanings yourself. So essentially how to run a maid service uh, as like a digital marketer, right? Was was essentially like what it was in a nutshell. Uh, I started that and, uh, and was working with a friend of mine that we started that together. And I kind of dealt with all of the people parts of that business. And then he dealt with all of the backend stuff. So he built the website and then he built the kind of behind the scenes on the website that allowed us to quickly manage our calendar, send reminders, all of that stuff, and that's essentially what led to uh, to ZenMate. Wonderful. So, what is what is ZenMate today? So, ZenMate, so essentially, in a nutshell, every single maid service on the planet has to manage their calendar or their schedule in one way or another. And so a lot of made services in the past were using pen and paper or they were using Google Calendar, but they have to know where they have to be and when. They have to know the details of every cleaning. They have to know who's assigned to it. And there's a couple of pieces of information that just every made service across the planet has to know, otherwise they're going to go out of business because they can't provide a quality service. And so ZenMate is essentially a very specialized software that helps them to manage all of that information and we've added on over time a lot more features so we can now help them with payroll. But one of our big claims to fame in the very beginning was essentially that we sent reminders. So the owner of the maid service would finalize their schedule and then ZenMaid would send text reminders to the clients to remind them of their upcoming appointments. It would automatically email work orders to the actual cleaners and stuff like that. And then like I said, we've built out a lot of functionality since that point. And so these reminders, was it something that you took away from running a maid service yourself or was that some early stage yes. customer discovery? No, that, that was something that we did ourselves. That was one of the things that we did to kind of innovate in the industry, that that was something that we, a lot of our competitors at the time took two or three years after we launched to actually start doing um, SMS reminders in particular. And that was something that a lot of 
a lot of our early customers were interested in that or they were already sending SMS reminders, but they weren't aware that it could be done automatically through a software program. So a lot of them were doing it manually and then they saw what we were doing and they're like, oh, that's awesome. That'll save me a bunch of time. And that's why they essentially signed up initially. And how did you decide to launch a SaaS company at that point? So. I feel like I got quite lucky there. So I ran like my maid service and that was a side project. I was working a full-time job in Southern California. I moved back up to Northern California to take a new job and we shut down the maid service that my partner at the time wasn't comfortable with me running the maid service from, you know, a couple hundred miles away, despite the fact that I wasn't needed on location to do any of the stuff that I was doing. And essentially my, my co-founder at ZenMade approached me at that point when I was back in the Bay Area and essentially said, hey, you know, I've seen what you guys built behind the scenes. I think that I can rebuild that, but better and turn it into a SaaS that we can sell to other maid service owners. And he essentially asked if I wanted to partner with him on that to handle the sales, marketing, really everything non-technical, right? Anything that I could do, taking out the trash, anything I could do to make him more productive so he didn't have to like focus on anything other than building the product was pretty much my job for the first like couple of years. So uh, you were you were lucky enough to find a technical co-founder pretty much right at the start. Do you think that was because you had proven that you have a market, that you have already something? Like even before you found a tech co-founder, you had a prototype of the software? Yes and no. I think that I had some experience there, but I think that it was more that I was good friends with my co-founder at ZenMade prior to that, and he knew that like our skill sets matched up nicely and that I was going to be willing to hustle and to do what it takes in order to get the business off the ground. And honestly, I think that had a lot more to do with it than anything else, that we didn't have a prototype, that just because we had something that was working for us, that wasn't a huge, like a huge part of it. It definitely was a factor, and I think there were some things, but yeah, there, there, there's, a long, there's a long ways to go between that and like actually selling our first customers, which happened probably six or eight months after that. No, that makes perfect sense. And, but if you, if you hadn't known him, would you have still built that MVP or let's assume you, you would have wanted to build it? How would you, uh, is, there, is there any other way you can think of how you would have gone about it? Yeah, I would have gone out and pre-sold it. I, I can honestly say that I don't think that I would have started this company or done that if he hadn't approached me and uh, and wanted to do this with me. But if I had gotten that into my head of like, let's start a SaaS around this, I would have gone out and pre-sold it, right? That I already had, like you said, like a working prototype. It wasn't something that anyone else could use because it was just our backend, but I probably would have tried to go out and get you know, 10 or 20 made service owners to pay a couple hundred dollars for lifetime access to the software, you know, if we were to build it and then taking that money to pay a developer or to find a developer like him to partner with me and to just be like, hey, I've already collected a couple thousand dollars from people that want to use like that want to use this software. And I would have used those pre-sales for uh, for validation. That makes a lot of sense. And I assume it, it kind of went from there. You are good at SaaS sales. Uh, you uh, started acquiring customers, started iterating over to product market fit. How did that scaling process, especially with the with the product look like? What's your How did your feedback cycle look like? Did you have a lot of people that were saying, 
yeah, I'm interested, but it just needs a few more features? Or uh, was that rather smoothly? Uh, no, it was definitely not smooth at all. It took us it took us over three years to get to ten thousand dollars like a month. So it was the, it was the furthest thing from smooth that it, that it could be. Uh, I mean, we almost gave up multiple times in the first yeah in the first like four years. We almost threw in the towel a lot because it just felt like we were working so hard and getting you know pretty much nowhere. The one thing is, in hindsight, we did grow very consistently but very slowly, right? So you know, for the first three plus years, we averaged $300 a month. So the first year we were adding maybe 50 to like $80 a month in like in monthly recurring revenue when you take into account churn and all of that stuff. And so, yeah, you had a lot of people that would say that they were interested, but X, Y, Z. And, you know, I think that's normal for any software. That doesn't mean that you need to go out and, and build that stuff. It means that you need to go out and find more of the people that are just like, yes, this is what I need right now. And I, I think, honestly, we were particularly good at that. That one thing that was very helpful was with my partner, Arun, being able to focus on the product all the time. I never really had to worry about the product. I would occasionally make product decisions with him, but I could spend all of my time just focused on selling and marketing. And so of course I had zero interest in trying to sell someone that didn't feel that our product was ready. So I did, I did a very specific job with qualifying people and making sure that they were in the right place, that our software might've been, you know, mature enough at that point to actually, um, to actually help them. And so that was a very big like focus. And then, you know, we learned some, some hard lessons along the way that we had our very first customer, she paid us a thousand dollars upfront for life. And she insisted that she could not use the software until we built out this specific calendar view. And that calendar view set us back maybe five or six weeks of development time. We pushed it out. She started using the software and she never used that view. And like, thankfully other customers came in and used it, but she didn't. We also had the same thing. And we, we've realized this even today of, uh, that we learned a lot from this was we had a lot of people in the beginning that said, this looks great, this looks awesome, but I can't use it until it integrates with QuickBooks. And so at some point I got frustrated and was just like, I just wanna get over this sales integration. What's the fastest, crappiest QuickBooks integration that we can do? And we built this barely functional QuickBooks integration. A bunch of people that said they couldn't sign up until we had that immediately signed up, never integrated QuickBooks and were happy as could be. And so now we look at that a lot, that whenever people say, oh, I need this feature, we always ask ourselves, do they actually need that feature or do they just need to be able to say that we have that feature? And so it, that leads to a very iterative process, right? If people want payroll, we go, all right, here's the most basic payroll we can come out with. And then once we see people actually trying to use that basic payroll, then we listen to their feedback and we improve it from there. So, you know, lessons learned, lessons learned. <laughs> that, is, that is very, very interesting, actually. So for one, this approach of instead of if you have a bunch of customers that want very different features early stage, instead of building all of them, trying to understand what specific type of customer is it that's actually signing up right now and, and actually being happy before we go up market and clearly define that persona. And um, also, secondly, this instead of when, when people have feature requests and you actually like, okay, well maybe we, we should build it instead of 
doing year-long customer discovery and b- then building the best thing out there over five years that, that has every feature on earth, building something very basic and learn from the feedback? Yeah, exactly. It's increasing the feedback loops and it's it's realizing that some people are asking for the feature because they actually need the feature. Some people are asking for the feature because they just want to check the box. And if they just want to check the box, then the actual feature itself barely makes any difference. Uh, to, to go back to, to like the, the initial thing you were saying of, of identifying and targeting the people that are already ready to actually buy your software. Whenever like I talk about that on these sorts of interviews and with friends and stuff, it always reminds me of the quote of, you know, when, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And that was very much what it is. So what you see is you see a lot of indie hackers, you see a lot of developers that they try to solve every single problem by developing new features. They take very much the if we build it, they will come kind of thing. And like they probably end up with better products than I had in the beginning, but they don't end up with more customers. And so for me, because I had very little control over the product, the only thing that I could do, like I couldn't do anything personally to accelerate the development time. And so because of that, for me being like, you know, essentially the marketing or sales hammer, it was very much if I want to get results here, I have to find the people that are actually ready. And so in the beginning, that was just much smaller maid services that just didn't have a strict needs, right? You know, to be completely honest, it was a lot of maid service owners that weren't operating strictly by the books, right? That they didn't need, you know, to be able to take into account taxes because they were paying cash, you know, to their employees and stuff like that. So they just wanted a souped up Google Calendar that sent a couple reminders. But then, of course, as we got more and more of those customers, you know, they began to go more and more towards the ones that were following everything by the letter of the law and of course we had to grow up with them so I, I wouldn't change that you know in, in an instant like I wouldn't I wouldn't change that for for the world in terms of how like we started but of course like if I was starting over from scratch today with the experience that I that I have today I, I would definitely do it differently but at the time that was what we needed to get traction and uh, also super interesting for me is because you, you say you have your your co-founders basically taking care of product you take care of the customer side how does the communication loop here work? Because that's usually very, very critical between non-technical and technical co-founders to 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 make to, to be on the same page when it comes to customer needs, to how certain features have to be used or not, because you inevitably probably have a bit more customer insight being in touch with everybody all the time. How does that feedback loop work? So with that question, do you mean how did it work in the beginning or do you mean how does it work now? Because there's a huge difference between those two. I think it would be super interesting <laughs> to explore how that evolved as well. Okay. So in the beginning, it was very much like I let my co-founder, like I sort of gave my opinion on stuff and then he would go out and he would build build like whatever it was. And he was very good at taking code live that worked perfectly and didn't have any bugs, but we had a tendency to miss the mark with little UI UX decisions, right? We came out with things that with a little bit more thought, it was very obvious that they could have been a lot better and everything. And how that's evolved over time 
is we, so my co-founder hasn't been with the company since 2017. So he transitioned out. And so when he transitioned out, then I much more became like the product manager, uh, that, that I became really the one that was making most of the product decisions. And it became a lot less of me just, you know, kind of talking to him about it. And then he would go out and design whatever he thought was like, was, was best. And so, now what happens is now there's usually a high level conversation about whatever the next feature it is that's that's needed right and sometimes I'll have had conversations with customers before that. You know, the ZenMade team has multiple maid service owners on it. So sometimes I'll be having internal conversations with essentially ZenMade customers, but also folks that work with us uh, and be talking to them about it. And I'll have a high level conversation with the development team or the development lead. And sometimes that's enough information. Like we have a very good feel, like we've got very good communication at this point. So sometimes that initial conversation is enough for them to go out and to do it. Sometimes they'll come back with mock-ups. It really depends on kind of the level of the feature. And we take into account a lot like how kind of serious a feature it is and how wrong the feature can go. And I think that's a really important point, right? Is there's some things where it's like, okay, we need to add this email template to the system. We have email templates in there. If we release it and there's something off with it, it's very easy to fix. So for that, we can just have a high level conversation. They can come out with the feature and if they miss the mark, then we just adjust from there. But then we have things where like right now we're redoing our payroll system. And if we redo our payroll system and we get that wrong, that's not easy for us to go back and fix. And so a lot more thought goes into making sure that we nail that right out of like out of the gate. And so we, we kind of play it by ear with all the um, with all the different um, the different features that we're kind of working on. And so then of course we have a lot of feedback loops built in. So sometimes they come back with mockups. I give my feedback. I go to our customers. We talk to them about the mockups, and we go like from from there. Sometimes they just release it and then we go through and do feedback loops and everything. But oftentimes the feedback loops are just saying like, hey guys, you nailed it with the functionality here, but this label is wrong. This button needs to be moved. And it's a lot more stuff of like, okay, functionally it's there, but it's not clear to the customers what we've actually just released. Or it's not going to be easy for a brand new trial user to be able to figure out without contacting our support team. And so it's little things like that. Got it. So essentially, you 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 understand how much of a negative impact a feature can have if developed not correctly, not as it should. And if that's very small, you don't really care that much about it. You see later how it works. You do feedback loops, but it, only if it really can have a dramatic impact, then you are more involved, more handholding, more feedback loops with yourself up front. That is very fascinating, and uh, I think a very good approach to also not micromanage and empower development teams wherever possible. So that's that's very interesting. What what is a feature that that took way longer than expected? If I remember correctly, I remember I saw this in the notes when you when you sent over the notes before the call, and I, I want to say it was releasing the mobile apps. I I, I think that was it. There was one feature that we had, I'm pretty sure it was releasing our mobile apps, that we said that it was going to be done in January, and it took until April or something like that, and the communication on it was just really frustrating, that like internally, like I had essentially committed us publicly 
to like January and the team had told me it'd be done in December. So I had already given us some leeway and then it just kept getting pushed back, kept getting pushed back and all that stuff. And yeah, I mean, there's just, there's some things that you really have to get right. And so I was looking at it internally and I wasn't like, yo, we have to push this right now. I was more looking at it internally and the dialogue there was, guys, this is not good enough. Like, we can't release this. Like, it needs to be better. And it took us until April to get it to, like, to that point. I'm pretty sure that that was, like, the, the, the big one that took just a lot longer than, than expected. What, what do you think the, the issue was mainly? Was it, because I'm, I'm not sure if you had, if you were used to building mobile apps, so maybe that was just new territory, or was it more UX uh, that things just weren't right for people or was it was it just no, not estimating it, it was it was definitely it was it was definitely communication it was definitely a communication issue like that, that that's literally most issues come down to communication because most deadlines are completely made up a lot of people don't like to hear that but the truth is that most people there's no rhyme or reason they just go we're going to get an api out at the end of the month like, well, well, why, you know? And like that, that's why I oftentimes won't announce things until they're very close to done because sometimes it's, you have something you think is going to take two months and it's done three days later. And sometimes it's the exact opposite where you think it's going to be a two week project and six months later, you're still working on it. And in this case, it was just very poor communication. Um, and, and not, that's like not to blame anyone on like our development team. But like you said, it was that mobile development was like, was new. And so we kind of miss we misestimated it, but it really was more about the communication around the misestimation that was really the problem. Like, it's perfectly fine for us to, like, realize that the deadline that we set or the expectations that we set are wrong. The problem was, was that they kept saying, you know, it's going to take another week, it's going to take another two weeks. And honestly, when we did, you know, a, a post-mortem on that, it should have been very clear in December that this was not going to be something that we were going to be able to fix in, in two weeks. And so, yeah, like I said, I've, I've found that the vast majority, 99% of the issues that we run into are communication issues above, above all else. Although from, from, being a developer myself sometimes it's just it's just very unclear you think you're going to fix something but then you fix that issue but you discover the underlying issue and that one is a hell lot of, of a lot bigger which is really the frustrating part of all of this so i i, I totally understand how how that got around do you do you do you what, what's your current product team set up right now so until um until recently, there were just two people on the product team that we just had our um, our CTO and then our mobile developer. And then in the past, like maybe two months, that's really skyrocketed that now we have like six or seven people on the team. And so with that, we have we have two interns now. And then we have a couple of folks that actually started out on other parts of our team that have now started helping us with different things. So we have two team members, are actually our COO, who I guess is kind of bored with his role apparently because he's like moved into development. And then one of um, one of our like former VAs actually, the two of them have been spending the past couple of months just writing tests for the software so that we can begin to upgrade our Rails version and to be able to just move faster without worrying as much about like about breaking things 
Then we have the interns, the CTO, the mobile developer, and then even like my wife now, um, who, who's been like our head of marketing. Uh, she's beginning to, to learn to code. And um, our CTO has been really good about breaking things down to the point where, where every team member now can actually spend time doing some stuff that then we actually use in the app. So it, it's beginning to accelerate for us. So yeah, but, but like I said, until very, very recently, it was literally just just two guys and that allowed us to move very, very quickly. Awesome. So you're, you're fully remote, I take it? Yeah, fully remote since 2013. Nice. Do you have any any challenges or learnings around remote work, uh, fully remote work, teams, team culture, accountability, things like that? I always struggle with that question because we've never known it any other way, right? That a lot of people go, oh, like you know, it's you know, it, it, like there, there's there's all like these sorts of differences, and to me, that's just always been the you know the the, the way that it is. So. Yeah, it's kind of a hard one. I mean, I, I do think that it's important that you're connected with people more than just in Slack, that I'm like friends on Facebook with all of like with all of our employees and stuff. And some people aren't aren't like aren't comfortable with that. But I do think that that's uh, that, that that's like important that if you're not seeing everyone on a day to day like basis, you've got to have other ways to kind of get to know them and to like to feel like to feel close to them and stuff like that. You know, we we have a we've like we've we've ramped up our calls over the years. So, so now like every team will meet at least on a weekly basis. Um, there's still not too many calls. Like most people on the team, I would say have two or three calls at the max each, like each week. But like one little thing that we've done is, is on all of those calls, we end all of the calls with a, uh, with a personal question, right? Like a, appropriate personal question, right? So today, like we just had the exec call an hour and a half ago and the question to end that call was, was if the Zenmade team threw you a surprise birthday party, which like one or two celebrities would would you want to have like at that party, right? And that always leads to you know to interesting interesting discussions, right? You know, or like who was your favorite Disney prince growing up and stuff like that. And so yeah, I, I don't know that that's probably not all that like useful, but I, I do feel like it definitely lends to the team dynamic that I feel like a lot of companies are like missing. Yeah, I don't know. We, we try to make sure that maybe not that everyone on our team are like our friends, but that they're friendly with each other. And I think that's really important because a lot of people will like will um, miss that if they're used to um, to office work. Uh, at the same time, though, we very rarely hire someone that's used to working in an office. That's one thing that we found is, you know, everyone if they're working in an office and they become like a remote worker there's going to be some transition period other companies can deal with that transition period we've found that for us it just doesn't really work you know if they're if they're used to working in an office we don't we don't want to be the ones that 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 deal with that kind of transition where they have to learn to manage their own schedule and not have someone looking over their shoulder and all of that that you know if the person's not already working remotely i'm i'm not very likely to hire them that makes a lot of sense, uh, and also great hack with the with the uh, birthday. So, who would you invite? <laughs> uh, we we said uh, I, I said I said that I would invite um, The Rock and Kevin Hart. That th <laughs> those would be like would be the two that if you, if you ever see those guys in like in interviews, I mean in, in the in their movies, of course they're hilarious. But if you ever see them, you know, on like Instagram stories or anything like that, they just seem like they would be such a riot to hang out with. Like they, it just seems like it'd be a guaranteed fun time with the two of them. So, um, 
And what's your what's your distribution before uh, between core core team members and and freelancers? Uh, there's only maybe I think like right now I think we have four people that I would consider to be full time, and we have about twenty five people. So it's it's a lot of freelancers, it's a lot of contractors, a lot of agencies. Um, like I mentioned earlier, we have a Variety, I think that we have out of 25, I think we have six or seven maid service owners that are on the team that actually run their own maid service and used ZenMaid for a considerable amount of time before joining our team. So all of those guys maybe work for us for two hours a day, probably even like even less than that. And that's just because they don't really need any training, right? They know the software inside and out, right? So we don't really have to do all that much. They're just available to help out like our other customers to jump on sales calls with potential customers and all of like all of that stuff. And then we work with agencies a lot that I've, I've written about this a little bit on my Twitter and, uh, and, and stuff like that, that I think that if you're working with agencies, agencies are great if you have all of your stuff, like if all of your ducks are in a row, then bringing on agencies to kind of scale what's already working is brilliant. If you try to bring on an agency to figure out something that's not already working in your business, you're probably gonna have a very difficult time unless you're paying top, top dollar for them. Uh, why would that be? Because they, they don't know, they don't have the insights that you need to make these decisions? Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely talking more on the, well, marketing side, but also like the product side, right? It is, you know, if, you, if you're listening to this and you're an entrepreneur, your biggest job is to understand your market. It's to grow your team and to understand like your market, right? And the truth is, is that an agency is like, they just, they don't have the time, the resources to actually become experts in your specific like industry. So for us, you know, we work with, with like a, a writing, like a content agency. We don't expect them to be experts in running a maid service and we don't want trash content. So instead what we do is we get all of like our industry partners and all of the actual experts in the cleaning industry, we get them to record videos with actual expert content from someone that's run a maid service for 20 years or whatever. And then we send those videos over to this content agency and they turn it into really high quality, like written content. So that's like an example, but it's the same thing with like with development is if you hire like a dev agency, unless you're telling them exactly what to do and like you have a really good idea of exactly what you need, they're not going to go out and figure out like, you know, the little details that make the difference between a mediocre software that kind of does the job versus like the software where your customers log in and they're like, oh crap, like this was designed exactly for me. Yeah, 100%. We also yeah. tell all of our customers that market research and understanding what to build, that, that must be on them, right? Because um, yeah, otherwise it doesn't matter who you work with, you're going to be iterating. That learning curve mm -hmm. is, is something that's, that's on you uh, customer and business-wise, 100%. Um, yeah. Awesome. So, um, uh, awesome. what's 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 uh, what's in it for for ZenMate right now? What's what's the outlook here? What's your next milestone? So we just crossed like a hundred thousand dollars a month, like last week or the week before. 
I don't even know what the next big milestone is. That kind of seems like the last really big one until we hit, you know, two million dollars in annual um, annual recurring revenue. But um, I, you know, I, I've been doing the digital nomad thing that I've been traveling the world since 2015, and so my goals right now with ZenMade are just to continue growing the business without sacrificing my lifestyle and without losing the team culture that we have. So I do think that we're going to kind of top out our team here pretty soon that I think at some point we're just going to be like, okay, we're not going to hire any more people. We're just going to continue growing the company however like much we can while keeping this small group because I don't think that that on a personal level, you know, we're at like 20 or 25 people on the team and I don't think that I really want to be the CEO that's managing 50 or 100 employees. Like, I just don't think that that's where I want to go, particularly from like from a lifestyle uh, perspective. Um, but I do want to see how far we can get. You know, I, I think that we can scale this to two or three million dollars uh, annually, you know, with actually the current team. I think that we're finally in a place where we can add on a lot of revenue without having to scale up our, our manpower too much. So that, that's kind, kind of the focus right now. We're definitely in a, in a scaling phase, uh, but also in kind of like a going back to basics kind of phase, right? As we're trying to solidify the product, solidify the software, make it faster, you know, improve performance, um, just make it like less buggy and stuff. And then, you know, we've been doing this long enough that most of our marketing and marketing channels are working well and so it's really just about doubling down on what's working and just trying to you know accelerate the growth and take us to the next level amazing well good luck with that thank you so much amar for being on the show where can people learn more about you get in touch with you uh learn about zenmade learn about zenmade yeah. So the uh, two places, if you if you happen to be a random maid service owner that's listening to this, you can go to zenmade.com. Um, I'm not sure how you would have found this, but congrats. Um, thank you for listening. Um, if you're a, if you're a SaaS entrepreneur, um, or if you're interested in lifestyle design or marketing or any of that stuff, the two places to find me. So I'm most active on Twitter. Uh, Twitter handle is it's just Amar. So I T S J U S T A M A R. And then if you want to check out my personal website, that is uh, theamericandream.com. So the American Dream, but spelled A M A R instead of A M E R. Uh, if you want to um to look that up. And every now and again, I'll post some uh, kind of longer form, like longer form content content on various things there. And uh, yeah, if you reach out to me on Twitter, if you drop me a DM on Twitter, I'm always happy to connect with um, with, with new folks. Always happy to answer questions and even um, jump on a Zoom call for anyone that wants to take me up on that, that uh, until I get too popular and my calendar gets too full, uh, I'm always willing to uh, to chat with aspiring and up and coming entrepreneurs. So I'd encourage everyone to do that. Awesome. That's that's very nice of you. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and uh, hope to chat soon. All right. Sounds good. Thanks so much for having me.